You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. I'm very, uh, oh yeah. So I'm excited to do this. I'm glad that you guys got uh, the exposure to see the various different uh, thinkers in Austrian economics that are sort of operating at the, at the frontiers of the research um, in that regard, in terms as we judge it against the profession. Um, so I think that that's, um, you know, kind of important. And it's, uh, I hope you had a chance to uh, get a talk to some of them. So for example, Roger Koppel and his wife, Maria, they're starting, it's actually Maria's center, but they're starting a brand new center at Syracuse University. Um, and it's a phenomenal thing to have centers like this propping up all over the place. And uh, so and Syracuse is the number one program in entrepreneurship, scholarship. And Maria is one of the leading scholars in entrepreneurship. Uh, she was a student of Bill Bommel's and uh, she led the, uh, the GEM project, which is a global entrepreneurship monitor. And she moved her way up through the profession, and she has a very lucrative chaired professorship there. And now she's going to have this center, and there's going to be professorship opportunities, postdoc opportunities, all kinds of things there. And so, you know, uh, I hope uh, you guys, you know, use the contacts that you might have made to start knowing what's going on with all of these different uh, sort of areas and whatnot. And as, you know, you just had the privilege of, of hearing Professor Rizzo has this sort of you know, very important book coming out on this whole issue of rationality and economics. Um, but Professor Rizzo is, is the co-director of the, the Classical Liberal Institute at New York University Law School. New York University Law School is one of the best law schools in the world. Um, and uh, they have this center now that they're developing. Um, it's just very exciting times uh, and prospects. And so um, Austrian influenced ideas are a growth industry. Um, and so unlike the position that Professor Kersner communicated as when he made his decision to continue to do research in this, and you should keep in mind that Professor Kersner is not only a world-renowned scholar in economics, he's also a very important uh, scholar in Talmudic studies. So if you actually look him up on Wikipedia, whatever, you'll recognize he's a big deal in Talmudic study. He could have actually just done that and been a, quite a well-known person. But he chose to work in economics. He made that decision at a time, as he said, that Austrian economics um, had been determined to be dead. And then the choice was whether or not to give it a decent burial or just like, you know, let it die a, a proper death um, kind of thing. Well, that's not the case today. The case today is the Austrian school is so vibrant and, and pluralistic that you can have people hating each other. Uh, you know, like, uh, like death throws fights to the death um, over silly topics or whatever. Um, but, um, and uh, you can also see Austrian economics moving in all kinds of different directions. Um, Bruce Caldwell uh, made reference to the, the Austrian economic seminar in, in, uh, in Boulder, Colorado. 
I actually, so I ran the Austrian conference for many years and I inherited after um, Professor Kersner ran it for many years and, and uh, um, we had it at NYU and at FEE um, during those times and then we brought it back down to here. Um, <clears throat> just uh, and now, now we're doing it here. But um, I, So I had at one time all of the reading lists for all the different years. And I was just telling Professor Rizzo before, in, in, and he, he remembers this because he was there, but in, in Boulder, Colorado, it was for two weeks, and they had eight lectures on capital theory. Eight lectures. They would be things like, you know, uh, you know pure time preference versus marginal productivity theory of interest rates, you know, and, um, and whatnot. And uh, so it was a different kind of idea. Now, you know, if you go and have those things, you get things like, Professor Koppel talking about the applications of certain kind of Austrian ideas related to forensic science and the rule of experts. Basically what's going on is you're taking Austrian economics ideas, you're mixing them with other kind of ideas, and then you're creating new ways to look into other social sciences. Now get ready, folks. That's actually how science advances. Right? Science is always about upward and onward. All right, you're getting this from a historian of thought as well. Like, I love talking about old ideas. I would love nothing better than to have like a few beers with me, sit down with Patrick out on a boat in the middle of the river. No one else can have it. And then we could just have at each other about, you know, some arcane notion of a priorism or something. I love that stuff. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, how I spent my entire undergraduate education in economics was fighting with people and getting mad at them and then screaming that they didn't know anything because um, they didn't listen to me. Um, but, uh, uh, and, I, and I, do, I still value that stuff. And I think that all of you that are into Austrian economics shouldn't shy away from, you know, these kind of esoteric kind of debates about fundamental issues. But if you're viewing yourself as a part of a progressive research program, it's always about the next project and onward and upward and the blending of different traditions. And that's kind of what I'm going to talk about today. This talk changes with each generation because with each generation, there's new questions, right, that come about. So when Professor Rizzo was, was studying school, communism didn't collapse. Communism was there. There was a different set of questions which were at the cutting edge of the economic conversation, all right? Pete Leeson and Chris Coyne, they grew up in a world where the rules of the game are what was being under question. So of course their research focused on endogenous rule formation. Because that's what everyone wanted to do. You know, Raghu Rajan wrote a famous paper, Assume Anarchy. Why? Because standard neoclassical economics, of which he's kind of working in, begins with the assumption of clearly defined and strictly enforced private property rights. But if I'm dealing with failed and weak states, what is it that makes them failed in weak states? Property rights are ill-defined and not very strongly enforced. And so that's the reason why you have to then study. How is it that that would come about? And so where do you learn that from? Well, you learn it from your own intellectual curiosity, but you also learn it when you apply that intellectual curiosity to looking out the window. So your generation, think about it, the financial crisis. These are the puzzles and whatnot that, are, that you know, you're, you're thinking about, right? Uh, the lingering difficulties. How about structural inequalities, right? These are the kind of issues. Now, so let's step back. So they're always going to change, and, the, and a school of thought 
or a tradition of thought has to change with the times to address the pressing issues. You have to bridge the gap between the cutting edge of academia and the pressing issues that are out the window in the real world. That's the only way in which you're actually going to make progress, okay? But to begin with, we should actually start with a very, very simple, basic notion of what is universal across that. And that's in the title here, an invitation to inquiry, right? I'm asking you to join me in an intellectual adventure. But what is it that I'm promising to give you in that intellectual adventure? And here it is. Economics is a golden key. Economics. Not sociology, not political science, not anything else. All that other stuff. Okay? But economics is this golden key. And when I apply it, I can open up all the mysteries of the world. Now, here's the secret about this. Good economists don't hoard the key. They want to share the key. And they want to share the key with their students, their colleagues, everyone. Economics is a 24-7 right, life. It's a way to live. It's not a 9-to-5 occupation. Right? It is something that you apply every moment of every single idea uh, you know, uh, of your waking life. And maybe even your sleeping life. Right? It's a 24-7 thing, and it unlocks these wonderful mysteries. And so what, in order to, the, the first thing you have to do is not be so cynical that you don't see anything mysterious. You have to be willing to allow the mystery of the mundane. So that excites your imagination, and then you apply sort of the economic way of thinking to all of these ideas. So the title of my talk is An Invitation to Inquiry, Austrian Economics as a Progressive Research Program in the Humanities and the Social Sciences. And I want to invite you to, to come into that. All right, so let's start. My wife makes fun of me all the time, by the way, because she says, Pete, it's PowerPoint. Not power paragraphs. <laughs> so, but I resist learning. Uh, so, um, so this is Jim Buchanan. And uh, this is an essay that we just published uh, in the Review of Austrian Economics. Chris and I just published in the Review of Austrian Economics. It's from 1979, and it was a previously unpublished paper. It's called On Hayek. And what I want to stress in here is the, um, in the first paragraph, he's talking about in the uh, late 70s, the emergence of new centers, like what I was just talking about with Roger Koppel or the center at Troy or these different places. And these include Miami, which is a law and economic center, VPI, which of course was the public choice center, UCLA, Chicago, Rochester, NYU, uh, which is Professor Kersner, University of Washington, which was Doug North. And uh, these are first finally now starting to get, uh, you know, these little, uh, actually that Washington was University of Washington in, uh, on the West Coast, which then moved to Washington University, uh, right? Not the university moved, but like the center kind of moved. Um, but this is at this time, we're talking about North, who was the department chairman, uh, Stephen Chung, right, who used to like to tell Bob Higgs all the time, Bob, I'm a home run hitter. You only hit singles. 
And Bob said, thanks, uh, you know. Stephen Chung thought very highly of himself, right? He only hits home runs. Bob only hits singles. Uh, but uh, Yoram Barzell, uh, a variety of people. By the way, uh, this is also, this University of Washington is where uh, Stroop and, uh, and uh, also um, um, Gortney, you know, come out of. It's that tradition. As t- uh, Terry Anderson. Uh, so for any of you who know this, this, these are all North students. So these centers must be strengthened in New Islands, Auburn, Colorado, must be created. Um, the diverse approaches of the intersecting schools must be the basis for conciliation, not conflict. We must marry the property rights, law and economics, public choice, Austrian subjectivist approaches. And we must continue to be able to secure sufficient independent external financial support to ward off the threats from academic en- uh, enemies within our institutions. So, right, let us jointly resolve that uh, those of us who labor in the academic vineyards and those of us who provide support for the Hayeks of the late 20th century and early 21st century will never again be forced to endure the lean years that Professor Hayek suffered. We cannot, we must not make it more costly for young scholars to devote themselves either to escapist nonsense, by the way, read in there Samuelson, uh, or to romantic ins- uh, absurdity than to search for the espousal of elementary truths. The Hayek's of the world are scarce, but with appropriate incentives, there are many who can and will make significant contributions to the free society we all must seek. You have to understand, without people like Jim Buchanan, without people like Henry Manny, without people like Israel Kirzner, none of you would be sitting in this room today. Right? You might be sitting downtown in Washington, D.C., at the International Students for Liberty. Because there'd be a libertarian movement, it just wouldn't be in universities. So understand that. There, you know, Robert Nozick had to exist for libertarian philosophers to exist in philosophy departments. Otherwise, they just exist in novels called Ayn Rand. <laughs> right? and, and they talk to each other. I mean, it's cool, right? It's, it happens, and it's very powerful. I don't know what's... <laughs> is, is that because you have my old one? I do. Yeah, okay. Okay, um, it's not that much different. So we just there we are. So I don't ever change all that much. All right. So I think you have to understand, as, as Professor Kirzner said, the role that various different people play in the support. This is on his Thursday afternoon talk, not his Thursday night talk. For those of you who are the grad students, he mentioned the idea of his career as an Austrian economist. You know the role that various different institutions play. Right? And as he said, for example, Mises' home was never NYU. It was Fee. Right? But you couldn't say that, for example, for about Professor, Kur- uh, Professor Rizzo. His home's been NYU. Right? That's a, that's a move up in the, in the chain. Buchanan's home was in these institutional homes. Our home here is at George Mason University. There's these new homes that are being created, and they create you know, space and opportunities. So... Why take inspiration from this? Well, first, your job as an economist isn't to worry about the stuff I was doing. It's actually to go back exactly the way Kirzner. I want you to get inspired by that basic idea. You should be willing to make this choice if you think that it has no consequences for your, like, except for terrible consequences for you, because you're so enamored with the truth. Here's a sort of a factoid about my life. I'm not trying to tell you this because, you know, we didn't have salt when I was a kid or something like that. Um, but when I graduated from college, I got a pretty decent, lucrative job doing what I did in college, and I loved it, okay? I did not make 
in nominal terms, the amount of money that I made the first year I was out of college teaching tennis until I was halfway through my assistant professorship at NYU as an you know, assistant professor, just in terms of the dollar amounts, all right? Um, let alone, that's, in, that's just in nominal terms, let alone in real terms during that period of time. So the rate of return on my human capital, all the market signals were telling me, go do this, not that. But when I was doing that, when I was having breaks, I was reading economics books, right? You know, the people come out to me at the pool, and I got like, you know, Man, Economy, and State, which is a big, thick, ass book to be out at a pool by and they're like what are you reading and I'm like I'm reading this passage about the problem of mathematical economics for the 500th time and cheering about it and they're like yeah that's kind of stupid um, <laughs> but like that's what I was excited about and so that's what I wanted to do so I couldn't help but think of myself as wanting to go to graduate school I had to go to graduate school otherwise I would have went insane and the reason was is I thought that that graduate school was where this key was going to be and someone didn't give it to me yet and I needed to get it and I wanted to grab it. And, I, and, and you know what was fantastic is I show up at graduate school, and rather than having to steal it, like sneak in at midnight to take it from Don Lavoie, he's like, meet me here, and I'll give it to you. And then meet me here again, and I'll give you some more of it. He never tried to hoard it from me, neither did Jim Buchanan, anyone. They just gave it away freely, like, go ahead. And then they're like, go tell everyone else about it, and they can like do it. It's not a common pool resource, right? It, it's like, go there and do it. And so first things first. <laughs> is the economic way of thinking, right, is this key. It's just, you know, you got to fall in love with it. Second, there's strategic moments. So for those of you who are in the policy world, this is called Overton Windows, right? It's a guy named Joe Overton. He was at the Mackinac Center. And it actually is a very common phraseology in political science nowadays. <clears throat> but it actually relates exactly to Koppel's point about evolution. There's certain points in the evolutionary path when possibility sets exist that didn't used to exist before. And that's what I meant before by being concentrated on going out the window. So you need to have these kind of things. Like in the mid-70s, there's a breakdown of the Keynesian consensus. So it made perfect sense that rational expectations came about. And it also, by the way, if you read the history of it, Bob Lucas called his original rational expectations theory a neo-Austrian theory. Right? Go and look at it, like his book, Understanding Business Cycles. This is, it was for Kevin Hoover to point out to him that he was making a little error all right, and, and whatnot. But he thought he was going back to pre-Keynesian theories and resurrecting a kind of price-theoretic foundation for business cycle theory. Breakdown of communism. I benefited tremendously from that. That's the only reason why I've had any kind of career in some sense is because five years earlier, everyone would have been like, and five years later, everyone was exhausted. But I came right in the sweet spot, right? And so as a result, I was like, you know, one of the condemning hypotheses about why it is that communism's collapsing right at that time. I was very fortunate in that regard. Uh, the failure of development planning, right? The lack of convergence and the identification of that. That raises all kinds of questions that were there. Imp impotence of government management since 2008. Why are we having a, a, a sort of such a weak recovery? Right? If you look out the window, this is all up for you. If you look just on the blackboard, you might miss the Overton window. Okay? And so, you know, you got to really kind of keep going. This is the absurdity and injustice 
that's, by the way, those are positive analysis, not wealth, not a normative conclusion there. Uh, the war, you didn't laugh. Anyway, uh, warfare, welfare, and rent-seeking state. Right? This is what Chris Coyne's doing now. Right? He talked about development economics, but his most recent book is how we lose our, our domestic liberties because of the foreign interventions abroad. That's his next book that's coming out, and this is what he's sort of examining. So first, so there's, there's more interesting research topics than this group could even think of, given the changes in the world. Right? The world is too damn interesting for you to be wallowing in depression about, oh my god, no one listens to Austrian economics. You want to know what you do? Make them listen. They have a problem. They can't explain things. So you know what? Raise your hand in the classroom of professional opinion and force them to pay attention to you. Now, how do you force them to pay attention to them? You don't stamp your feet and say, pay attention to me. That's like a child does that. What you do is you have to answer their questions better than they're answering them. And that requires a discipline on your part, right? Which is one of the reasons why you go to graduate school. All right, strength in relative numbers. But here's the advantage. There's more professional economists practicing Austrian economics today than in any time in the history of the school. So you have a network. It's not like Kirzner's loneliness, right? I mean, Kirzner had a correspondence with Ludwig Lachmann. That was the only correspondent he could have. Chris was making fun of me this the other day. I have 37,758 unread messages in my inbox. Okay? I will tell you, they're not about, like, Vermin Supreme or whatever the hell, you know, right? They're, they're, they're about like things having to do with like Austrian economics and everything like that. Let Steve Horowitz handle Vermin Supreme. All right. So we have this amazing relative strength of numbers because of Hayek, because of Kirzner, because of Buchanan, and because of their students. And you should take advantage of that. There are new voices for a new generation with new concerns. So you have to use the heart and the head once again. How many of you got interested because of like the Ron Paul campaign? Raise your hands very high, okay? All right, so that's the heart. Now you're studying economics. Now you're learning to use your head. Passion can be a very useful tool. I don't talk about Murray Rothbard that much. But Murray Rothbard was this huge influence on me when I was a kid. And one of the things that he used to say was, anger can be a muse. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's right, uh, right? It, and, and so, you know, use the passion as a tool, but use it wisely. It's just because, you know, your heart got you to think about something doesn't mean you just go with your heart. And, and so... You're a new voice for a new generation. How are we going to respond to that? I'm an older generation. Other people are older yet, right? There's some continuity in that, but we have to find those new things, and you should feel free to go out wherever it is that you feel compelled to study the world and bring the, uh, the insights of Austrian economics. I had a wrestle when another person who was very influential on me when I was a young kid, because I viewed him kind of as an old bro older brother, was Joe Salerno. And I was very friendly with Joe, and Joe was, of course, very friendly with me. 
Joe's notion, though, is a little different, I would argue, than this because he believes that you should be limited in a certain way to what you're studying. He describes graduate training, for example, as grabbing you by the ear and dragging you through like the, the rudimentary texts and stuff like that. He's actually written that down. And he described me as a young economist as a punk, right? As like a part of like the punk artists or whatever. Um, and I, you know, gladly, okay, sex pistols, yay, you know, all that stuff. That's great, but the point isn't really that I wanted to overturn Rothbardianism. It was that I wanted to turn Rothbardianism to be relevant for today, not the Rothbardian that was relevant in 1965, not the Rothbard that was relevant in 1975, uh, but the relevance of Rothbard in 1985 and 1990. That's when I was a young guy. That's what I wanted it to be. The questions were different. We weren't fighting the Vietnam War. The Keynesian system wasn't going through stagflation. Other questions were there. How do you go and do it? So the fact that people that were trained in another time kept on wanting you to talk about things that were back then, it's not, not relevant. Now, this is what's relevant. So go from there. Think about like my former student, Dan D'Amico. He's completely obsessed with the problem of mass incarceration. Mass incarceration has existed for a long time. Just ask D'Amico. You can go all the way back to ancient, you know, ancient Greek and everything and look at the way they dealt with criminals and the whole history of all this. But D'Amico really takes it to it. But that is a major issue today, is the issue of the police state. And D'Amico's right there. Is he like somehow you know, messing up Austrian economics because he's applying it to a topic that Mises never wrote on? Hell no. He's actually making Mises more relevant than he ever was. All right, so there's another way. For the students who have been here, you've seen me do this before. So for students that aren't here, it's no, when I do this, there's no sexism implied or anything like that. I'm not looking for Marilyn Monroe. Remember, it's all about economics. So it is the sexiest thing you'll ever see. But, uh, and, uh, but uh, what happened in economics, as you think about economics, is that in the, in the mid-period when Kirzner was identifying as the Austrians 1940s, 50s, making the most significant contributions, and yet people weren't paying attention. The reason is, is that the Austrian school during that period of time is asking these kind of big questions, and the economics profession is asking narrower and narrower questions. They're becoming more and more precise about less and less that's relevant. This breaks down in the post-1990s period because it can't explain the collapse of communism or the lack of convergence in development economies. So something has to explain. So by the end of the 20th century, we're asking again, you know, why no capitalism in Africa? Here, we ended the century by asking, why no capitalism in China? But it's the same question. So Max Weber is asking a question at the end of the 19th century. Asimoglu, Johnson, and Robinson are asking a question at the end of the 20th century. And we come back to that question again. So think about that in terms of the way economics evolves. Another way to think about this relates a little bit more to the kind of discussion that Caldwell and others have about Hayek's project, which is the follows, is that this is what economics looked like Right when Marshall came to the field. Right? Marshall was part of a project which they called the Cambridge Tripo. Philosophy, politics, and economics. Economics was part of the moral sciences. Marshall wanted to have economics be its own separate discipline. Again, institutions matter. 
Why did Marshall want his own discipline? He wanted his own budget. <laughs> right? Right? To go back to Koppel's thing. These are not necessarily truth seekers. They're also what? Right? Normal human beings that have normal incentives. I want to be able to maximize my bureau's budget. I want to be able to maximize my span of control so I have people underneath of me that I can hire and I can build out my department. Right? And the, all these things matter. And so what happens is the Cambridge tripo has to actually move in a way where they pull the disciplines apart. This is the 20th century. This is the history of the 20th century in that period that I was saying before at the top of the hourglass to the middle of the hourglass. And now what's important about that is as follows, because it relates to Koppel again, but also work that I'm doing right now with, with uh, Paul Alagica and Vlad Tarko in a book that's coming out with Oxford on public administration. Because if economics is a tool of public administration and public administration was transformed by the progressive era, then economics is necessarily going to have to be transformed to fit the needs of that new science of, of, of administration. And that's how you get the economics of control. And so let me read to you from Samuelson's foundations, uh, uh, his economics book. So Samuelson, by the way, you can't study the history of modern economics without taking into account the brilliance of Samuelson because he did two things that are amazing. He cornered the market for principles and he cornered the market for graduate techs. And he did it in a less than a three-year period. Foundations of, of uh, Economic Analysis is published in 1947, and it becomes the way most people are taught graduate school economics for the next generation. And his Principles of Economics book comes out in 1948, and it's the best-selling economics textbook for the next generation. So he got you on the way in, and he got you on the way as you were becoming coming out. Okay? And it totally changed the way economics was done. So he writes, just so that you understand where he's coming from, this is from the 1948 edition. Writes in the first edition that older ideas of classical liberal political economists and their individualist social philosophy must be rethought in light of modernity. The vast interdependence of modern commercial societies have made it impossible to continue to believe that that government governs best, which governs least. Unbridled capitalism no doubt produced rapid economic growth in the 18th and 19th century, but it also left us with business cycles, wasteful exhaustion of resources, income inequality, monopoly power, and political corruption by the moneyed interest. The complex economic conditions of modern economic life mean that sensible men of goodwill will be inspect, uh, expected to invoke the authority and creativity of government to solve the problem. Who is against sensible men of goodwill? Right? Even Newman is a sensible man of goodwill. All right? So the economics of control follows naturally from the alliance of scientism and statism. All right? So if you have a takeaway line here, okay, what happened? So you have the Randian line. The looters and the moochers align to rip off the producers. If you keep that mind in light, you can read anything by Ayn Rand and understand what the hell she said. Right? The looters and moochers align to rip off the producers. Okay? Here's the economic version of this. The alliance of scientism and statism produced the horrors of the 20th century. 
The alliance of scientism and statism is what led to Stalinism, to what to led to Hitlerism, and what led to Rooseveltism. Okay? And all that that implied. It's, it's uh, to go back to Koppel, it's the complete exaltation of the expert. In fact, the expert is to be immune from any democratic pressure. That's Wilsonian's ide Wilson's idea. Wilson, Wilsonian professional bureaucracies should not be ever subject to democracy. They should be, in fact, always independent regulatory agencies that are completely immune from politics but governed by the experts. Okay? And that's, in fact, what then economics was supposed to derive. So... What happens here is the return of the, of, the, of the sort of worldly philosophy. That's what you're seeing. So when you see someone like even, uh, you know, um, Robert Schiller, you know, writing a paper after the financial crisis saying, hey, we need a return to the worldly philosophy because economists, these experts, weren't paying attention to all these other kind of things. We need to think about this, okay? You know, Jeff Sachs who, by the way, believes he's a good expert, but he nevertheless calls for a return to the worldly philosophy, right? Joe Stiglitz calls for a return to the worldly philosophy. The only modern thinker who doesn't like the worldly philosophy idea is Krugman, right? Who believes that, as he's written, that the world can be divided into knaves, fools, and me. <laughs> he's actually said that. That's a New York Times column. If you don't believe me, I'm not, like, look it up. Paul Krugman, he says, the world's very, people say to me, you know, Paul, how can you say all these people are wrong? And he says, very simply, they are. Because the world is either knaves or fools or they're right, like me. And so, therefore, the me expert should be in control. He's very clear about that kind of position. So he doesn't like this, but even Stiglitz wants us to bring back and discuss these kind of issues again. So what is it that we do here at Mason? So one of the things that was kind of interesting is Israel Kirzner was asked a question yesterday afternoon and he, by Chris Coyne, he said, what did you think about public choice? I thought his answer was a little strange for two reasons. Um, but I understand Israel's position because he's very you know, focused. But just for two reasons, I think his answer is a little uh, unusual. Henry Manny was one of the biggest supporters of Israel's ideas and entrepreneurship. And in fact, Henry Manny had Israel come down to the Miami Center, and he wrote his little monograph called The Perils of Regulation, in which he talks about superfluous discoveries and whatnot in contrast to the interest groups. It's also the case that Jim Buchanan, starting with the economic point of view, constantly pushed for Israel's ideas. So when Israel was writing stuff like, you know, the, uh, the market theory and the price system, it's true that, as he said yesterday, it didn't get adopted. But if you read Costs and Choice, Buchanan talks about it in there. Right. If you, you know, read even in, in what should economists do, the references are there to the economic point of view. Remember what Kirzner's, what Buchanan's whole idea is not so much praxeology but cataloxy. But where does, where does, you know, Kirzner's whole chapter before he gets to, you know, uh, you know, uh, Robbins and then Mises is all about catalactic tradition. And so they, you know, that's where they learn that stuff. That's from Waitley. So Kirzner was known to them and also respected by them. And if you go into the archives, You'll see that Kirzner was at the Volcker Fund, for example, conference that all these guys point to that was very famous that was at North Carolina, Chapel Hill in the 50s. You see a very you know, young picture of Israel Kirzner there. 
And it's also the case, you know, you guys can double check this and go look it, but Armin Alchin wrote a very famous paper. It's called Some Economics of Property Rights. And Henry Manny will tell you this, that Alchin was the discussion leader for a Volcker Fund seminar. And at that Volcker Fund seminar was not only Henry Manny, but Harold Demsetz. These are all graduate students. Israel Kirzner, Jim Buchanan, all these different people at the time. And Mises' book, Human Action, was the only required reading. And Alchin's essay, Some Economics of Property Rights, is a write-up of his lecture based on the chapters in Mises on, on uh, property rights economics. So the connection between all of these guys is as Kersner, as, uh, excuse me, as Buchanan mentions it earlier on. So Israel tried to make it be, and then what did he say in response to Chris? For those of you who are here, he said, oh, that only a cap and once it got to George Mason. Okay? That is actually true. It only became institutionally organized in some sense at George Mason, but it actually was in the air in Charlottesville. Uh, Koppel put a picture up there earlier. You know, uh, again, give you an example of this. Dick Wagner is a product of the Charlottesville years. When he taught at VPI, he taught price theory. So many of you who are students here, you've had Walter Williams. Williams is an Alchin student. So you use university economics is what you're supposed to learn, right? When you take Walter Williams, you study other things, but if you learn university economics, you really kind of know what's going on. When Wagner taught price theory at VPI, the text was human action. That was their assigned textbook. Right? So Tom DiLorenzo was a student in that class. Charlie Breeden was a student in that class. They say they're the only two people who didn't like get pissed off at Wagner for using human action, you know, while everyone else is. Then they go from human action to a general equilibrium class. And they're like, what the hell? But, uh, you know, <laughs> thanks a lot. But that's the way Wagner taught it. That's very much a Buchanan thing. So what is George Mason about? Well, George Mason is actually in, in a very fundamental way about these six Nobel Prize winners and the connection that they had to our program, which was very deep. And not just surface. They, they were involved in it. They were uh, involved in the, in the making out of the program. Hayek, for example, gave the very first public lecture when we established a PhD program at George Mason. They established a PhD program. The first public lecture was Hayek on the sources of human values. You can actually watch it online. Okay? Um, he's an old elderly man, but that's who they decided to sort of you know, be as the intellectual representative. The man who was the department chairman at the time was William Snavely. His professional career was built on the idea of the socialist calculation debate. In his job before he came to George Mason, he was the advisor, PhD advisor, of Dom Armentano. And Armentano's dissertation wasn't on antitrust, it was actually on the calculation debate. Uh, obviously, our two Nobel Prize winners, Jim Buchanan and, 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 and Vernon Smith, uh, Vernon Smith describes his own career as follows. He was a senior at Caltech taking an economics seminar, and he got interested in economics. He was a uh, physics engineering major, so, you know, he's really good at math and everything. And so he goes to the library and says, what are the two latest books that have come out on economics? And the librarian says, oh, yeah, there's two books we just got. One's, you know, from Harvard. The other one is from Yale. Foundations of Economics by Paul Samuelson, Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. <laughs> and if you read any interviews with Vernon, he says he spent the entire next two years trying to figure out how both books were right. Because just like Kersner, he said, you know, he read Mises, and he said, well, he's right. I might disagree, 
but like there's nothing I can find that he's wrong on. And as he said, he spent his entire career trying to show like both of these books can somehow. So that means he's a different version of Austrian economics than Murray Rothbart, right? But it doesn't mean he's not an Austrian economist, right? It's just that he's not a Rothbardian Austrian economist. There's different kind of views on these things, all right? And then Eleanor Ostrom, all right? So, oh, I, I forgot two people. So Ronald Coase, who, by the way, is a student of Hayek, leaves London, comes back, and then is a colleague of Hayek at the London School of Economics, all right? And then Doug North, right, who we mentioned before at Washington University and then University of Washington, Washington University. And then Eleanor Ostrom, who actually is a product of UCLA. And in a lot of ways, the way you can view her work is that she's trying to find Jungian or Hayekian solutions to Hobbesian problem situations, right? That's what she's trying to do uh, in her work. So it's kind of a challenging kind of idea. All right, so what does this look like then? Well, we're doing political economy. I said we have a rebirth of political economy. In the modern tradition of political economy, everything is on this side. Okay? So this is called political economics. Jonathan's here. He's a Rochester guy, right? So this, in fact, is the Rochester School of Rational Choice, Politics, Structure-Induced Equilibrium, right? This is, this is your bed and, uh, uh, bread and butter, right? Bill Riker, right? Then we have, you know, Virginia School, and then we have the Becker-Stigler approach to political economy. That's the dominant, this, all the in, in space in here. Now think of kind of the interesting questions that are in there. But for those of you who are Mason students, this is where you get like the, in some sense, you could claim the Whitman position. This is the outcome, right, is going to be, Glenn, is going to be uh, 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 Doug Whitman's, uh, you know, sort of where he's going to be. Okay? Now... What we're trying to do is on this side. It's not that we say that we can't learn from over here, but we're going to kind of put a little slightly different thing. Koppel, some of this stuff is like little trivial points, like the way Koppel said, the difference between striving and achieving. I say this all the time in my interactions with Pete Leeson. I never heard Koppel say it before, so I was very surprised. So that either means that there's wisdom in crowds or there's insanity, and I, I haven't figured out which one. But I think there's a huge difference between striving and achieving. We strive to do the best that we can given our situation. doesn't mean that we actually do the best that we can given our situation. It's all kinds of uh, twicks between, I'm going to screw up because it's like too much literature, but what is it, twicks between cups and lip? Yeah, between cup and lip. Something like that. If Larry White was here, he would correct me and have the right way uh, to do it. But this is kind of over here. So you think about over here, Tulloch is a little bit more natural on this side. Buchanan is a little bit more natural on this side. And you contrast the Rochester School with the Bloomington School. All right? And so you play out. But in all things, we want to have a political economy program. Now, so this is the way we, this is our framework in which we're going to then go out the window with. All right, so go back to the marriage idea. Instead of thinking in terms of this is like, so you're, I, there's all kinds of metaphors you could use. Eyeglasses, this is your set of eyeglasses. Another way to think about it is you have only, you have arrows in your quiver and you're hunting deer and the deer happens to be truth. And the deer is a very nimble and agile animal that can get away and you're trying to shoot the deer, right? And you're not trying to shoot the deer with like a sawed off shotgun or like, you know, beam me up, 
Captain Kirk and come down with some kind of ray gun where you could take out like the whole thing. You're trying to shoot it with a fine, you know, arrow, which means you're subtle and precise with your kill. Some questions are property rights questions. Some questions, right, are going to be public choice. Some questions are going to be IAD, right? Why would you ever go out on the hunt without a full set of arrows in your quiver? That's just being dumb. You only have one quiver, praxeology. <laughs> Arrow goes away, right? The arrow flies wrong, the deer runs away, you go, I don't know what to say, okay? So what you want to do is you want to be able to have like these different tools in your analytical toolkit and be able to deploy them. Now, you're not going to just pull anything. I'm not saying, by the way, you pull in there and you say like, you know, exploitation of man by man. You go, oh, okay, right? <laughs> that one's not the right one because you've already decided before the hunt that you've done the analysis and that's not a very good arrow. It's like a, a short arrow that's bent. So when you go to fire it, you go way off. Right? And so you don't get near the deer, right? So you've already made that analysis. But inside of that, you're going to find these kind of ideas here, and you want to use them as best as you can. So what does this mean? Summarize it in one big sentence. It says, look, what we do as economists is we study exchange behavior and the institutions within which that exchange takes place. That's it. That's what we do. So we're always looking for the deals. And we're always looking at how institutions structure the deals, whether or not that's in politics, law, religion, wherever. What are the institutions that are in place? What are the deals that are being struck? What are the deals that aren't being able to be maneuvered because we have institutional impediments? And we're going to kind of try to figure out all that kind of idea, the importance of the framework. All right, in the interest of time, I'm going to actually blow through these things, but... Just keep, bear with me here. These are like the good guys, okay? By the way, I should ste step back for a second because I want to, and it's not I'm paying homage to, to, uh, to Patrick or my education, but I will say the following thing. Everything that I'm saying, you can find in Mises' as Human Action. I actually think it as, it's the, so in modern social, sociological thought and rational choice theory, there's a book by James Coleman that's, you know, sort of the foundations of social inquiry. It's a rational choice analysis. A lot of people go to that and look at that to do, think how you do rational choice sociology. Um, Mises' is human action properly read is that for economists. I, I, I honestly and sincerely believe it's the greatest book that's ever been written by an economist. Okay? But I also know a few things. One. It was written in 1949. The world's different. We need new books like that. Two, he was really bad at English. Now, his book doesn't reflect bad English. It actually reflects choppy, nice writing. Well, I just found this yesterday. I have in my possession all of Henry Hazlitt's edits on that book. Henry Hazlitt was one of the best economic journalists in the world at the time. He was the editor of the New York Times, right? And he edited Mises' book. And I think, and Hazlitt is a brilliant writer, but he's not 
an economist in the way we defined economics post-1950. He would have been an economist prior to 1950. And he was. He was a brilliant economic mind. But post-1950, he's not a professional economist. He's an economic journalist. How do economic journalists write? They don't write like the way you write in the, in the journals. They write short sentences, punchy. They bring in little colorful examples. And so now I'm, th I'm not sure about this. I'm going to explore this some more. But I'm pretty sure the, the tensions that exist in Mises where you're reading a detailed discussion of the price system and then he starts bitching about the Fuhrer, which is like one of the reasons why we like the book because, you know, it keeps us excited when we're students. We're like, you know, yeah, the Fuhrer, he sucked. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, you know, and all this stuff like that. I think Hazlitt probably, like, egged him on to do that kind of stuff because it makes the writing lively, which is why the book had such a checkered history in academia. <laughs> Right? Because academic books, so you read Samuelson's Foundations, think about it. The contrast with Mises' book, your Vernon Smith, that's the contrast you're supposed to have. A treatise, a treatise. Right? And then you're, you're doing a horse race between the two treatises. Okay? But if you don't write, like, if you read Samuelson, I read you Samuelson being kind of flowery with his language. That's his principles book. That's not in Foundations. Foundations, it's all this pseudoscientific language about, you know, proof and blah, 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 and all that stuff. That's how professional economists thought they were writing, because they were providing the manual for what? For the expert, for the engineer. So it's an engineering manual. Mises' book is a manual of social philosophy. It's a different kind of book. But I think that, like, that book, so all the stuff that I'm saying here, Mises said. But to a large extent, the people that come after had to clarify Mises' scientific contribution for the generation that was coming, because Mises was writing, and he wrote, and Hazlitt helped him write as if he was still writing in the 19th century. So if you read Human Action and you read Marx's Capital, they sound similar in tone, style, breadth. But he doesn't sound like Paul Samuelson, right? So there's a difference in those kind of ideas. He doesn't even sound like John Maynard Keynes. Right? If you read Keynes, Keynes is closer to Samuelson than he is to Mises in terms of tone. So you want to know why it is that Hayek gets paid attention to. It's not because Hayek stole anything from Mises or anything like that. He writes in English and he writes to the scientific community. Right? And that's who he wrote to. Okay, there he is. All right. He won the Nobel Prize. All right. Buchanan, Coase. There's a theme here. <laughs> and I'm trying to, by the way, it's not, it's, it should be, you should understand there's a theme. I'm trying to argue by authority. You are a young people. People try to tell you, oh, if you work in these ideas, you can't get a job. One, that's factually wrong. Okay? That's the first thing I want you to understand. Uh, two, you can't get published. That's factually wrong. People are publishing in all the different places with these ideas. They might not publish the same way as, you, you know, in the same journals, but they publish in, like, journals right below those journals. And they publish with the top university presses. I mean, Larry White's book, The Clash of Economic Ideas, is published by Cambridge University Press. Okay? Cambridge, Oxford, Princeton, those are your top university presses. Okay? Larry White's book is there, right there, Clash of Economic Ideas. Doesn't pull any punches. Lays it all out. Okay? So... Now you don't have an excuse. 
You can't just, you know, oh, no one will publish my book, you know, no, <laughs> right? But you have to write good. You can't write like, you know, a ham-fisted like idiot, all right? And so, by the way, we don't need ham-fisted idiots supporting these kind of ideas, right? We have a lot of them, but go hang out with the vermin. Um, I never knew about this guy till today. You ever heard about him? No, see? Like, I never heard about him, and now all of a sudden he's all over, you know, social media, people taking pictures with him. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, so what was Buchanan's vision? So the reason why I emphasize Buchanan so much is because he was this intellectual entrepreneur. He knew how to fight from within the, side the system. And not only that, he knew how to, like, take scars and get back up. So a lot of you guys probably, you know, you're, this is a way too old sports reference for you. But here's the reality. Muhammad Ali won the heavyweight title at least three times. It's a phenomenal feat. He got defeated, then he got back up, beat somebody, and got the title back again. All right, in a lot of ways, that's Buchanan. All right, he's at University of Virginia, right, which is a top 10 department. He's the king dog at the time in that department. And the English department aligns with people to kick him out. And they kick him out like in a slow move, right? They first don't promote you know, Gordon Tullock, then what they do is they don't match, uh, you know, uh, Ronald Coase's offer from University of Chicago. G. Warren Nutter leaves to go work in the Republican administration in Washington, D.C. And Buchanan says, you know, Jesus, what the hell? So he leaves there and he goes to UCLA to hang out with Alchin. Well, he's at UCLA. He becomes good friends with Bill Allen. Bill Allen has a radio show called The Midnight Economist. And what happens is the student protesters decide to blow up Bill Allen's car. And the university administration doesn't do anything about it. Right? They don't say, like, oh, you hooligans, you know, like, they're like, Bill, you need to be, like, calmer in your column. Right? So for all of you who, again, had Walter Williams, imagine if someone said to him, Walter, don't write that column again. Right? <laughs> what would he do? The next day, five of those columns would be written. Right? <laughs> so Buchanan says, I'm going to escape, and I'm going to go to the mountains. And, you know, I, I one time, I tried to talk to him. I said, Jim, when you went to VPI, you know, VPI was terrible school at the time. Like, really a bad school. And I said, Jim, when you went to VPI, wasn't that really cool? Because you could, like, reshape the whole curriculum. And, you know, I'm in the archives. I'm reading this stuff. And they redesigned the curriculum and everything. And he goes, no, 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 hold on, hold on. He goes, Pete, Pete, <laughs> you're, you're putting too much romance on it. He goes, when I went there, I thought civilization was dying. If you read anything about it during that period of time, he did. And he goes, I thought civilization was dying. I was just going to retire. <laughs> retire in the mountains. No one's going to touch me. But then what happened when they were able to, like, you know, build this program up? And they built this program up, and it became this amazing mecca of research and everything like that. And then what happened is the very man that Buchanan picked to be the department chairman decided that Buchanan was an old fogey and that his students weren't learning enough of MIT economics and that we needed to increase the amount of mathematical economics. We need to increase the econometric burden. And so... They forced Buchanan out by methodology. UVA, he gets forced out by ideology. At VPI, he's forced out by methodology. And then he finds himself where? So if you thought GM, the VPI was a bad school, GMU at the time Buchanan came here was a community college. In the ugly, this, this is beautiful. Now, go on the other side of the campus, and it looks like like Stanley Kubrick's, like, you know, one floor of the cuckoo's nest or something. It's like old industrial, like, buildings from over there. That was the economics department. 
and he came here and his motto was, why would you ever want to be a pale version of MIT on the Potomac? Dare to be different. There's a memo he wrote to all his colleagues who he brought with him from VPI. And he said, let's go to George Mason and dare to be different and build something unique there. And he was such an attractive figure in doing that that Henry Manny decided to move from Emory, which, by the way, is the highest endowed school, right, Emory, at the time. He moved from the highest endowment to come to George Mason to build the law school, which, by the way, was in a book depository. You know, not in Dallas, but here in, Fair in Arlington. All right, so it was a book depository, and they built the law school there. Okay, so these guys built something phenomenal out of nothing. And that is the kind of idea that, and we've had two Nobel Prize winners. And, but what's Buchanan's message to us? You're going to carry on the honorable tradition of political economy, the study of what makes for the good society. Political economists stress the technical economic principles that one must understand in order to assess alternative arrangements. This is alternative institutional arrangements. So this is what we do. We use the basic principles of economics, the technical principles of economics, to assess how alternative institutional arrangements impact economic behavior. So, gee, this is in fact also Vernon Smith in the lab. This is ecological rationality. How do alternative framing of the experiments affect the, the playing out or the manifestations of rationality in the lab? Okay, yet the political economists go further and frankly try to bring into open the philosophical issues that necessarily underlie all discussions of the appropriate functions of the government and all the proposed pol economic policy measures. So philosophy, politics, and economics, right? This is our core of what we try to do. So you saw a chart by Emily. You saw, you know, the way in which she do does this. This is my version of that. And it's a much more stripped down version, and maybe, in fact, a weaker version. Because at the core of this, notice here, I don't have any multiple arrows. Right? I'm actually kind of like a blunt force instrument. Right? <laughs> Ideas, institutions, performance. Get ready. Here's a, like a really important insight. Good ideas give us good institutions, give us good performance. Get ready. Bad ideas give us bad institutions, give us bad economic performance. It ain't rocket science, folks. Right? That's like the word. You, there's no unicorn out here. You know, they're sitting over there someplace where, like, there's really great ideas and there's really great institutions, but they're in the economic toilet. Right? And, not, and also the vice versa. Really, you know, bad ideas. They want to, like... You know, no property rights. They thieve from one another, right? The institutions are failing, falling apart, and yet we're in economic paradise. All right? So there's this linear relationship that we forget at our own peril in economics when we look out the window. But it gets somewhat complicated when you start thinking about the boxes like Emily was talking about, meaning that these ideas have to be legitimated. The legitimator of those ideas is in cultural beliefs. So translate this into economism, all right? The ideas raise, or the uh, cultural beliefs raise or lower the transaction costs associated with enforcing certain relationship between ideas and institutions. So if you have a collectivist cultural belief, 
it's going to be harder to get private property rights respected than if you have an individualist cultural belief. By the way, for those of you who study these things, that's a paper by Avner Greif in the Journal of Political Economy in the 1990s, okay, on individualist versus collectivist beliefs. Okay, uh, what do we mean by well-being? Right, happiness, all this kind of stuff. We have to ask these questions because the way we answer that question is going to determine how we judge performances. And how we judge well-being is then going to flow back into our cultural beliefs. But the Buchanan first line is right in here. Incentives, compatibility, information, utilization. Study economics. If you take this out, you're left with underwear gnomes. Ideas, performance, right? <laughs> so we have to actually study these institutions, and we have to study them in depth for the way that they structure incentives and control the quality and flow of information. Again, crappy graph. Uh, <laughs> it's not that crappy, Peter. Yeah, yeah, you made it. Uh, <laughs> it's not a crappy one at all. But it still gets confused with charmed, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, just two last things, and then we'll open up for Q and A, uh, or three last things. Which is, so what's our intellectual test before us? I think Hayek lays it out for us in his essay, uh, "The Intellectuals and Socialism." All right, everyone misunderstands that essay. It's a, like a massive confusion. I don't need to go into it. Maybe in the Q and A, if you want to ask me about it. Uh, how, I, how I understand that essay, but everyone misunderstands it, um, friend, foe, and, and whatever. But the reality is he says the following, which I want you to take to heart. We must take the task uh, of building a free society once more, an intellectual adventure. This is your invitation to inquiry. You should be pumped. You shouldn't be exhausted at the end of this week if we've done our job right. You get excited. You go home. You like read tonight. Right? Newman stays up till 3 in the morning arguing with you about some fine point uh, in economics, and you're like, I love it. You, know, you can mix beer and pizza in there if you want, but the main thing is the conversation, not the chugging. All right. Uh, so a free society once more, an intellectual adventure, a deed of courage. And then here comes my favorite part, a truly liberal radicalism. Okay? It's okay, folks, to think the unthinkable. Get ready. Anarchy can be a research program. Not the normative view of drawing litmus test libertarianism. You draw a red line in the assignment. You say, there's a non-aggression axiom. Violate that, you're not a libertarian. You know, huh? Like that. <laughs> right? That's, that's sort of dull and boring. The conversation stops before we get to three. But here's an interesting thing. We might have a mechanism that says, how about if we didn't have any state? And we, in fact, were requiring the enforcement, the, the establishment and enforcement of property rights in the absence of any central authority. How the hell do people do that? How far can we stretch that? Does it meet, meet a natural limit? Right? Is it constrained? Or can we, in fact, stretch it farther? Right? That's a research program. Does it only work with small groups of homogeneous agents with very low discount rates? That's what Avner Greif says. That's why the Mugabe, tri Mugabe traders could trade with one another. They could get cooperation. Because they weren't getting cooperation and anonymity. That's what the Grameen Bank people say, by the way. Right? Five people that you all know. 
and we're going to use reputational collateral to be able to be your credit. But how about like finance and big? So you're dealing with like anonymous interactors. Well, you know what? You say, oh, that can't happen. Well, it did actually happen. It was called letters of credit in historical development of capitalism. Jonathan would show up on my step and say, I need 500 whatever. And he would hand me a letter. And it would say, Prince Rizzo has said that you were a good man. And therefore, I would say, OK, here's your 500. That's your line of credit that you would get. Why would I believe that? Right? All of you know that if I go on a dating site and say I'm six foot five and a blonde surfer, ladies, come and get me, that you say, well, maybe not. <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe that doesn't work. But it's the same thing, but somehow this letter of credit actually got established and helped us do things. How did, what were the signals? What were the incentive mechanisms that were in operation? That's a research program. Right? It's exciting. Anarchy is a progressive research program in the social sciences. Do it. It's a truly radical liberalism. Okay? So that's one. Second, but you got to do it with humility. This is the trick. You're telling everyone they're wrong. But you got to tell them, like, you know, yeah, you're wrong, but so could I be wrong. I don't know how. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm just trying to figure it out. One of the things that shocked me and what I love about Vernon Smith and my interactions with him over the years, I met Vernon when, in the 1980s. But I'll tell you something about Vernon Smith that's amazing. He's a lifelong learner. Meaning that like when you meet him today, he's talking about new things, not the same things he was doing 20 years ago. Constantly new things. And here's the other thing about Vernon Smith. He walks into a room, and he never says, OK, I have the answer. He walks into a room, he says, OK, let's figure it out. How are we all going to go about figuring this out? He's a puzzler. He's a lifelong learner. He exudes nothing but the two characteristics that I think are most valuable in a scholar, especially the more radical you are, which is to be humble and hardworking. Complete humility, because you don't want to be the arrogance of the eccentric. Right? right? I believe everything that you don't believe, but I'm not smarter than you. Right? That's, that's, even if that was true, it's like a bad way. My wife always says, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, Pete. Okay? So you don't want to sort of communicate. But it's also bad intellectually. Right? You want to be the person who goes in a room and says, hey, let's figure this out. Right? And let's try to do that, because this is the issue here. Right? So... If mankind is not to do more harm than good, he needs to take this kind of, and reject the dizzy with success kind of idea. We have to embrace this humility. And that humility is, a, is, not, is, a, is not only just an epistemic sort of humility, it's also an institutional humility. All right, and that's a, maybe we can talk about that. And if we screw up, it's really, really costly. So Roger ended his talk with a question mark and said, have at it. I'm trying to do that too, but I also want you to understand the urgency of the task. Not only the pure joy of the task, of figuring things out. If any of you haven't read you know, Feynman's The Joy of, of Figuring Things Out or Finding Things Out, you should go do it. It's a fantastic book about what the intellectual quest is all about. You know, and, and, and it is, it's amazing. I, get, I have to pinch myself every day that I get to go to work, talk to young people about ideas that I love, that I fell in love with when I was, you know, a teenager, and that I get to talk to them about every day still. 
and I'm 55 years old now, and when I'm at work, I feel like I'm 19. Now, don't ask me that at 7 o'clock in the morning when I'm getting up, you know, and I'm like, hey, God, these knees suck. Um, but, uh, you know, but I do feel that way when I'm at work, and I get to do things, and I get too excited sometimes. I have all kinds of bad habits, right? I get too excited. I yell. I, I'm still like I'm 19 years old and, and talking to somebody in the hallways at Grove City and thinking that I can win an argument by throwing in some salty language because they say, oh, I never saw that before, you know, because they were all nice people at Grove City. And I'm from New Jersey, so New Jersey, you don't win a battle by getting salty. You only do that in Grove City. Um, so I do stupid things like that, and I have to calm myself down. But it's this I issue is because I read this when I was 17, 18 years old. And I became convinced he was right. Right? That if we screw up on our task... Right? Things like what happened in 20... So now part of that is because I started to study the Soviet Union. So I saw the horrendous inhumanity that other people can do to other people. But I've also traveled a lot because I do development economics in a lot of third world places. That's not popular to call them that anymore. But I will tell you, it's, poverty sucks. Okay? It, like, it, it, it is dreadful to be exposed to it and see people in that kind of environment. I also grew up in a part of New Jersey where I was fortunate myself to grow up with the parents and, and a nice family infrastructure, but three minutes from where I was was neighborhoods that were destroyed, that the unemployment rate has, you know, it's like that part of Baltimore. I lived right on the edge of two of the cities like that. And I was over there all the time because as a kid, I started playing basketball, and that's where I went and played basketball. Over there, I worked digging pools where I was the only person in the uh, pool company that had a driver's license because everyone else had lost their driver's license from their act extracurricular activity, let's say. Okay? Um, and doing those kind of jobs. And I seen people trapped in those kind of circumstances. And I want to see how it is that, you know, what are the institutional barriers? Right? I think of these things in terms of institutional barriers to practices that are productive, not as in residing in people and their characteristics. This is why, for those of you who are at George Mason, why I resist so strongly the behavioral genetics push of a lot of my colleagues. It's not because I don't, that I deny that IQ matters or something, but I don't know what I do with that. But I know what I do if I put the, the, uh, the focus on the institutional environment. And I look at that. That's why I want to focus on those kind of questions. So nobody can be a great economist who's only an economist. I'm even tempted to add that the economist who's only an economist is likely to become a nuisance, if not a positive danger. This is our motto for our research program here. So we do philosophy, politics, economics. We study ethnographies. Okay, I highly recommend the work that Stephanie has done on community redevelopment as part of her dissertation and her first book on these ideas, the work of Virgil and Nona and Emily Chamley Wright on ethnographies and how, the voices of how we got back. And like, go look at that kind of research. And if you see the connection of that stuff, go back and read earlier. The best, best sort of comment that I ever got for my second book was from a Russian economist who wrote to me and said that what I wrote about, I have a chapter in there that says how the system was supposed to work and how the system really worked. And he wrote me and said, 
that my description of how the system worked was exactly how they understood it living in their real life at the dinner table. That's like the best comment I ever got from anyone about what I was trying to do because that's what I was trying to capture. When I, I, went, I was a, a guest at the Academy of Sciences in Moscow and I was teaching in New York University at the time and I just walked around and saw all the different things and when I, I still have all my notebooks from that and uh, one of the things I told my colleague when I got back to New York University was a man named Andy Schotter and he was building one of the first labs actually um, and uh, at a big school and, uh, and I said to him, I said, I said, Andy, we don't need a lab. We just need to take all that money you're raising and send students to Arbot Street and tell them to like try to set up a business in Moscow. That's a lab, right? That's like field experiments, the real ones, <laughs> right? Not doing, you know, a game experiment in an area where they happen to have life going on, but actually like a real life experiment. The problem, of course, is what? You don't have the same scientific controls. I understand that. But like I want to unleash that kind of idea. Uh, you know, that's a part of our work. So we have a wide gambit of intellectual traditions going on here in our work, and Austrian economics reflects all of them. From very traditional economic history, I've been picking on Patrick, but I'll give him a plug right now. Patrick has written some very, very important papers in economic history, right? And those papers have been published in like the different Austrian journals, and he, he, he does that. One of the things he's straightening out is the whole issue on what's going on in the Great Depression. That's still a live debate, okay? What's going on in the Depression in 1920-21? That's a live debate. Patrick is bringing traditional economic history to bear on those kind of things. That's a research program. Stephanie's doing her work, which is ethnographic, social, cultural, economics. Okay? And then, you know, you have Pete Leeson. All right? And Chris Coyne, somewhere between all of those kind of ideas. All right? Um, so... We have a large, in the Austrian community, you heard Koppel talk, you heard Larry White talk, uh, you heard Mario talk, you have people that are doing theoretical work, empirical work, uh, sort of applied political economy work. So it's a very, very broad and open tradition that's inviting all of you to come in. And this is a great place to start. It will bankrupt you. Uh, <laughs> so get your library to get it for you. But it's a very comprehensive overview of what's currently in, in play within academic Austrian economics. And, um, and I highly recommend it, even though it's not available for free on the web. Right? The way you should think about this is you get what you paid for. The web has a ton, a ton of information, but very little knowledge. So I'm not denying that you should have some stuff for free, and it's cool. But if it's available for free, it might actually not be all that valuable. Right? You can't necessarily get like the journals for free. You can't necessarily get academic books for free. You can get Vermin Supreme or whatever and his website for free. Or whatever host of people, Stefan Molyneux or whatever. All right? <clears throat> and you can get them for free. And that's the value that you're paying for it, which is zero. So. You're a university person. Get your university library to get it, then you'll get it. Have your university, by the way, know your code. People always say, oh, I can't get access to that journal. Yes, you can. You're in a university. You tile into your database, and they give you everything for free because it's through the university. You just got to go through the portal. You can't go through Google. Google this. 
Oh, gated. Oh, it must suck, because I'm a libertarian and I hate anything that's gated. All right? All right? That's stupid, okay? So go find yourself like a way to access this stuff by going through a university, get access to the information, and see what's going on and find your place in it. There's an open invitation to inquiry. It's, the, it's a very exciting time for an Austrian economist, and it's a very exciting time for you guys to be studying it and entering into the profession of trying to engage with your colleagues. One last thing, which drives everything that I do, and I think it's what is shares in common all the other people that have talked to you this weekend. We believe that the paradigm within Austrian economics that comes out of the Viennese tradition is developed and, and refined by Mises and Hayek, and then further developed by the American contingents of scholars from Rothbard, Kersner, all the way up to the guys that you read and, 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 and ladies that you've read here today or heard today or yesterday. It's too important to be left to the economics profession as currently constituted. We can't abandon the economics profession just because it's hard for us to get a voice. The point is to figure out how to get in the voice. I'm the editor of the Review of Austrian Economics. I love the Review of Austrian Economics. I would love it even more if the letters on my journal were the AER. And I will not rest until that's the case. Whether I fail or not in that, I don't let the bastards breathe. I'm the president of the Southern Economic Association. It's the second largest professional association of economists. Now what I want to do, right? I'm going to fail, but that's what I want to do. I want to be the president of the AEA and stand up there and have my own M&M moment, right? It's too old a reference for you, but, right? But, uh, you know, and, and let them know, right? Like, uh, you know, like this is how economics should be done. I don't want to be milly-mouthed. You like me. It's really cool. Right? I want to actually change the way economics is done. In order to do that, I have to be an economist. I have to be a player in the economics profession. You have to be players in the economics profession. You have to be educators in the economics profession. Right? You can't just like set up shop on the corner somewhere and say, economics lectures taught to me by here. Right? And like, you know, guys go by, oh, yeah, let's try that. Right? It's a complete commitment to the profession, but bringing the Austrian ideas to it. And the reason why we can't leave it is because of the Mises quote of the stakes involved, but also the sheer fascination of the world. The world is too damn interesting to let boring people dictate what we think about it. Let's try to understand it. Let's use the best tools that we can to understand it. And let's all like figure it out together. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.